0: Well, we're going to have our ushers come forward. So we're going to get into the scriptures this morning for a little Bible study. If you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up and we'll have someone come and slide one into your lap there. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 17 this morning, specifically in verses 22 through 27. Matthew 17, verses 22 through 27. And if you're new to the Mission Church, we've been going through this series called Unexpected Messiah unexpected Messiah. And the reason we've called it that is because when Jesus came he was not as people thought he was going to be. They thought maybe he would be a conquering war hero or a political figure who had a lot of power. Either way someone to overthrow the Roman Empire and to restore Israel to its former glory days of King David and King Solomon. And last week, Pastor Dave took us through a pretty amazing chapter in which Jesus casts out a demon from a boy specifically to remind us that when we face insurmountable problems or evil strongholds, we are to come to Jesus. We are to come to Jesus. And this morning I've titled our message, Removing Offenses. Raise your hand if you are an offensive person this morning. Every one of us should be raising our hand. Do you ever offend people? Of course we do. It's impossible not to offend somebody. We live in this culture where everyone gets offended so easily. And here are some top things that offend people when they hear these words. Don't be so sensitive. Anybody ever said that to you? You ever say that to your kids? I'm not racist, but and then follows whatever comment comes. <laughs> My favorite one, "Oh, when are you due?" <laughs> if you haven't learned not to ask that question yet, at least you can walk away with something this Sunday morning. <laughs> A big one for our culture right now, all lives matter. Calm down. And then finally, no offense, But, and then you followed it up with whatever you want to say because now you can't offend them since you said no offense. (laughs) (laughs) Makes no sense whatsoever. We live in a culture that is saturated with offensiveness. People who are easily offended, and what we're going to see today is as Jesus is teaching his disciples in every moment that they walk with him how important it is for us to understand what it is to be offended easily, and also how we can offend easily for the purpose of removing certain offenses for the very reason of bringing people to Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting is as a culture, Christians carry a very offensive message, don't we? We carry a message that says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. We carry a message that says if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ and you do not come under His Lordship, you will spend eternity in separation from God in a place called hell or the lake of fire. Is that offensive? You bet it's offensive. But as we see in this story... Jesus had wisdom and discernment of when it was right to be offensive according to God's Word and then when to remove an offense in order to get people to God's Word. Something that is often difficult for us to understand and to discern. So before we get into the Scriptures this morning, let's bow our hearts and heads before the Lord. Father in heaven, what a gift it is to read your Word out in the open. In a public place where anyone is welcome, wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, male or female, young or old. Lord, the freedom that people have in here is part of the example of the freedom you've given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, may we not take for granted what we get to do this morning in singing praises to your name, and opening the scriptures Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be present in each one of us, that you would speak through me as an imperfect man to teach a perfect word is impossible but by your Spirit. Open our ears. Help us to see with the eyes of our heart. And Lord, may we grow to understand your character, your will, and your word better this morning. God, we thank you for the many churches that are gathering online that are gathering in person around this county. We pray blessings on them, their pastoral staff, their congregation. And Lord, that as the church of Jesus, our risen Savior, we would be united. God, thank you for this time that we have. May it be fruitful and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. We begin in verse 22 of chapter 17 this morning. Jesus is just finished. Teaching his disciples that certain strongholds, or in this case, this demon possessed boy, certain things can only be cast out by prayer and fasting, by not giving up, by continuing to pursue God's healing power on our lives. And Jesus says this to his disciples in verse 22. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. What's amazing to me is that Jesus is just constantly living life with his disciples. Strange things come up like demon-possessed kids, or like stormy seas, or questions from the Pharisees, or thousands of people that need to get fed, and Jesus is performing miracles, Jesus is doing these miraculous things, and yet always he is teaching his disciples. And we see three times in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 16, here in Matthew 17, and then again in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus pulls his disciples aside to focus on the main thing. And the main thing that Jesus came to earth for was to do what? Was to die, to take upon our sins on himself and take them to the cross so that the power of sin and death would be put into the grave and that he would be raised up from the dead to bring us new life. Jesus does not lose sight of the mission he's given. And here we see in verses 22 and 23, he tells them, the Son of Man, this is a title that he used for himself, which actually comes from the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. That would be the scribes, the Pharisees, the leading priests of the Jewish nation. And he would then be handed over to Pontius Pilate, who would declare that the Jews could do whatever they wanted with him and gave them permission to execute the death penalty on Jesus, where he was hung on a cross and killed? Jesus never loses sight of the main thing. In First John chapter two, verses one and two, it says this: "My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Who is that advocate? who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. It is important for us to remember that despite all of the amazing things that Jesus was doing, he never once forgot about his mission. And he would take time to minister to his disciples, to pull them aside and to remind them of what was coming. Now what's interesting here is what is the disciples' response? What does it say here in verse 23? It says they were sorrowful. They were sorrowful. They were in deep sorrow, which tells me they didn't have understanding of what Jesus was telling them. Because he tells them, hey, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be killed, but he also shares with them all three times in the Gospel of Matthew that what's going to happen? He would be raised up from the dead, but they don't understand what he's saying. How many of you have ever had someone try to explain something to you And it's clear they get it, but you're just not getting it. Anybody? Yeah. If you're a parent in the room today, let me encourage you with something. Jesus provides fascinating practical examples in the way that he ministers to his disciples. As a parent, what Jesus is doing is telling his children, Hey, this is going to come. It's going to be hard, but I want you to know it's going to be okay. When we put that into children's language, here's how I see that. I have four kids. They're 10, 9, 7, and 5. And something hard for them is we have to leave the beach at some point. We can't spend the night here. We can't leave here. We have to leave. I do a disservice to my children when I look at my watch and I go, All right, let's go. And they're in the middle of building a sandcastle or they're in the middle of surfing or whatever it is. As a wise parent, what I should do is go, hey, kids, we're going to leave in 15 minutes. Now, my five-year-old has no concept of time, so I might as well say tomorrow. (laughs) But what I'm doing is even though he doesn't understand yet, I'm building into the structure so that he can prepare himself that a time is coming to an end in which we must leave. And then after those 15 minutes, maybe I give them a five-minute warning so that by the time I get to the point where it's time to go, even if they throw a fit or even if they're still upset, we're practicing building into the structure of them preparing for what's to come. It's good for us to do this as parents. It's good for us to do this as employers because it's what Jesus does with his disciples in the scriptures. Let me remind you, this is going to happen. Revelation, this is going to happen and it's going to be okay. It's going to be hard, but it's going to be okay. I've got you. That practical parenting tip is for free. The next one will cost you. We continue in verse 24. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? We'll stop there for now. Now, this is a short passage. We're only going to go to verse 27. And I remember when I first started looking at this a couple weeks ago, I was thinking to myself, how is there a whole sermon built into these short six verses? And by the end of the week, what happened? How are we going to get out of here by 1045? Just kidding. Just kidding. Some of you who are new are like, you better be kidding. There is nothing wasted and what the scripture tells us. Here, Jesus is in Capernaum. And here's what we know about Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus' home base for ministry. It's where he constantly retreated to or where he came back to. And the reason why is specifically Peter lived in Capernaum. And most likely at this time, Jesus is staying in Peter's house. Therefore, Several men who are in charge of collecting the temple tax, so this would be a Jewish tax specific to the temple, not a Roman tax. That means Jewish men came to Peter and they asked him this question. Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Now there's a lot here to unpack, which is really important and will give us a little bit more understanding of what's being asked of Jesus specifically. And here's what I love. At this point... Any religious leader who comes to Jesus tends to be uh, in what kind of posture? hostile, right? So whoever said hostile, you're spot on. They're hostile. They keep trying to trap Jesus, trick Jesus, get him to stumble and trip up. They're jealous of his ministry. They're jealous of his popularity. They want to overthrow him because he's starting to draw thousands of people to his teaching and to himself. And most importantly, Jesus is incredibly offensive towards those religious leaders because he comes teaching a different Message Not of just the law, but of the heart and the relationship of God and what he desires with his people. Now we can take this one of two ways. We've got these Jewish tax collectors who come and they say to Peter, Hey, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Meaning, is he going to pay it? And we can see this one of two ways. We can see these men as hostile, which it's possible that they were. Maybe they were trying to catch Jesus and not doing something traditional that he should have been doing. But I think more likely, because this is a a pretty low-level task, what I see is these two men come to Peter out of respect for Jesus. They know who he is. They admire him as a great teacher, And so instead of going to him and wasting his time, they come to Peter, who is simply one of Jesus' followers or disciples. I don't think they're being hostile. I think they're asking legitimately, and here's why. The temple tax was collected in two places. Either the hometown of where you were born and lived, and or at the temple during the Passover festival. And in this case, since Jesus is staying in Peter's house, it's most likely that these men are simply asking, hey, we know Jesus is staying with you. Is this a good time to collect the temple tax from him? I don't think it's hostile, but what is being asked is incredible. And here's why. Where does this temple tax come from? When was it instituted? What's the history of it? And why does Jesus need to pay Or why is he expected to pay? Well, it's a little bit of an extended passage, so I've put it up on your screen, and I'll ask that you bear with me, but this temple tax is instituted in Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, and we're going to read through this in just a minute. To give you some context of Exodus chapter 30, God's people have left Egypt under the miraculous hand of God, delivering them from the hands of Pharaoh's oppression, the king of Egypt. They've experienced a miracle in going through the Red Sea. God then brings them in Exodus chapter 20 to a place called Mount Sinai where he gives them what? He gives them the Ten Commandments, the ways to walk in the blessings of the Lord, the ways in which will separate Israel, God's people, a nation unto himself from the rest of the world for the purpose of being a light and a testimony of who God is to all the earth. And in Exodus chapter 30, Israel is in the wilderness. And God begins to give them instructions about how to worship him. And here is part of the instructions. Exodus chapter 30, beginning in verse 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras. Just so you know, today a shekel is about $6.12 U.S. It's hard to tell how much it was worth back then, but it's not an inordinate amount of money. It's very doable for all people. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more than the poor, excuse me. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. What kind of offering was this? An atonement offering. We'll talk about that in a moment. And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. This tax comes all the way from the Old Testament when Moses was leading the people and it was for the very purpose of what? Atonement. Now we know of some other offerings of atonement, right? From the Old Testament. What were they? They were sacrifices, animal sacrifices, right? Either uh, a sheep or a goat or a lamb. These were atonement offerings. Now the reason why this is important, and I know we're getting into the details, but it's going to help you better understand why Jesus responds the way that he does. This is not a tithe. This is not a free will offering or simply like, hey, if you want to offer this or not, you can choose to. This is separate from both of those. What this is, is an atonement offering. And all people, 20 years and older, were required to give a half shekel. And what that half shekel represented was, we are in debt to God. We are in debt to God. Because of our sinfulness, because of our wicked ways, we have a debt that God makes a way for in this small atonement offering that is not to pay our debt, meaning somehow we can pay our way out of the sinfulness that we have, but as a reminder to remind us that we are in debt to God. Our sin made us debtors, and Jesus paid our debt. Our sin made us debtors, and Jesus paid our debt. Now up to this point in history, what we're looking at today this temple tax continued. It had become a little bit lax. Um, It was pretty commonly known that faithful Jewish people would pay this temple tax, and there were others who were still Jewish that would just kind of avoid it and get out of it. Not a lot like today, right? No one tries to escape paying their taxes today or looking for loopholes or whatever it is. So these men come to collect the temple tax. Now, who is Jesus? The Son of God, the atonement sacrifice. And if you think about this situation, these men come to Peter and they say, Hey, uh, does your teacher pay the temple tax? And I love it. Peter just responds with what? He just automatically says yes. I don't know because the Bible doesn't provide us tone, but knowing Peter, he didn't even think about it, right? He's like, oh, perhaps of course he does. Yeah, he pays it. And then notice what it says here. It says, uh, and when he had come into the house, meaning Peter's like, oh shoot, I better, I better check to make sure Jesus does pay the temple tax and I didn't speak out of turn. Jesus does something incredible with Peter. Peter's about to walk in and go, hey Jesus, you do pay the temple tax, Right? And it says that Jesus anticipates what he's going to say, revealing again his divinity, his omnipotence, knowing all things. And instead of allowing Peter to speak and ask Jesus a question, what does Jesus do? He turns around and asks Peter a question. All throughout the Gospels. Jesus is constantly asking questions. As a matter of fact, he asks over 300 questions in the New Testament, and he rarely gives answers. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write this down on asking questions. Asking questions. Here's what asking questions will do in your relationships, both in your marriage, in your parenting, with your neighbors, with your friends, and with your coworkers, here's what asking questions do they bring down walls. Asking questions brings down walls. It communicates to the person hey, I care about what you have to say. I want to engage with you on this further. The second thing that asking questions does is it encourages listening. If you're asking a question, you're essentially asking that person to do what? No. (laughs) Let's try that again. Thank you for participating in this wonderful study. If you ask a person a question, you're encouraging them to do what? To speak, to talk, to share what they're feeling, thinking, what their opinion is, what the facts are. And your job as the person asking the question is to what? It's to listen. Another part of bringing down those walls And then at least one other thing it does is it leads people to truth. If you can ask the right questions, you can lead people to truth that they discover for themselves. Jesus is brilliant at this. He has a desire not just to tell people what's right, but to lead, to teach, and to encourage people to discern what is right on their own because they have God's word. The Spirit will be poured out on them. They are capable of figuring out the answers themselves from what God has provided. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13, it's on your screens. Let's read it together. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. Let's read that again, this time for comprehension. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. Except when we live in a culture that reacts like that. But if we can take time to ask questions, if we can take time to listen, we won't be in danger of foolishness or shameful behavior because we will have listened to others. It amazes me if we took the time to actually listen to other sides and other opinions, whether they're wrong or whether we agree with them or not, the opportunity to build relationships would be far greater than simply just spouting off without listening to what people have to say. Jesus is masterful at this. And his question that he asks is for a much deeper purpose than what P- Peter thinks it is. Notice the question that he asks. He says this to Simon Peter. He says, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? In other words, if there's a king and he has all these people and he also has a son, who is he going to tax? He's going to tax the strangers. He's going to tax the people. Who's he not going to tax? The sons. Now, has Jesus set Peter up for success? (laughs) Tom's just learned to say no. There's something deeper here. I know it. It's a trick. (laughs) In the question, has Jesus set Peter up for success? Yes, he's asked him a question that he knows, that Peter knows the answer to, at least on the surface. And the answer is, well, of course, it's strangers. And then Jesus derives an amazing truth from what he's just said. Look at verse 26. Peter said to him, well, from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Then the sons are free. Jesus desires to take Peter deeper than this moment because Jesus isn't the least concerned about taxes, is he? He's not the least bit concerned about the political party. He's not the least bit concerned of whether you're wearing a mask or not. He's not the least bit concerned with you fill in the blank. What he is concerned with is the heart of what's happening That Peter doesn't see yet, and that Jesus wants to teach him and lead him to understand. When Jesus says, The sons are free, what an amazing statement he has made. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. The prophet Malachi, prophesying when the Messiah would come, says this Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Who's the messenger to the Messiah? John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Who's this talking about? Let's try that again. Who's who's this talking about? Jesus, Jesus, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In John chapter 2 verse 16, Jesus refers to the temple as my father's house. These tax collectors don't have understanding of what they're doing, but who are they asking for taxes? The one who owns the temple, the one who is being worshiped, the one who is the Messiah that has been promised to come and is the fulfillment of all Israel, who is the ultimate atonement sacrifice. The audacity, the arrogance, the ignorance of these tax collectors, in which they say, does your teacher pay the temple tax? And Jesus makes the point to Peter, well, hey, kings don't tax their sons, therefore the sons are free. And who is the son? Oh, Jesus is. Now, what's even more amazing is Jesus doesn't stop here. He uses the word son as plural. And he says, Well, the sons are free. Who is Jesus referring to? Oh my goodness! It's not just Jesus. It's those who are under his lordship and followership that are also free, which includes in this specific context, Peter. And here's what I love with what Jesus is doing. Jesus sets us free, adopted as children of the king. Jesus sets us free as children adopted of the King. Yes, of course, we know that Jesus is the Son of God, but because of what Christ comes to do and what he has done for us, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, taking our sins upon himself and removing the power of sin and death, he has taken our offenses and he's removed them so that we can be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. We no longer owe anything. We no longer have to make this partial atonement that could never cover our sins to begin with. Animal sacrifices or half a shekel. Because the sons and the daughters in Christ and through Christ have been set free. Now, I can imagine Peter's elation because his mind is probably still on earthly things, but how many of you would be excited if you got a letter from the US government saying you no longer owed taxes? <laughs> of course we would! That would be amazing! But it's hardly what Jesus is after with Peter. He tells Peter hey, that atonement sacrifice that had to be paid every year, even if it's not a lot, you're free. You're free. Now at this point, I imagine, Peter's already got it in his head. Possibly to go back to these men and to tell them, Hey, by the way, no, we're no longer paying the temple tax because we're free. And if you've got a problem with it, you can go talk to Jesus. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't stop there with Peter. Notice what he says in verse 27. He says, nevertheless. Everyone say, Nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless lest we offend them go to the sea cast in a hook and take the fish that comes up first and when you have opened its mouth you will find a piece of money and take that and give it to them for me and for you now there's a lot to unpack here but wait a minute Jesus just said we're free from paying the tax and now what's Jesus doing? paying the tax why would he do that? He does not want to unnecessarily offend. I think there's a couple of important things to talk about when we start talking about offensiveness, especially because the culture that we're in. In its context, in the Greek, the word used for offense is the word scandalizo. What words in the English language come from scandalizo? Scandal or scandalize. Right? We recognize that, that root word. And here is what it means. To cause someone offense, according to the Greek and the way it's used here, it means to entice someone to sin. To cause a person to distrust and desert one who they actually should trust. And to put a stumbling block or something that a brother or sister could trip in someone's way. This is not about, oh, I'm offended by what you're wearing. Oh, I'm offended by it. No, this is something deeper. This is actually an offense that causes a person to stumble into sin. Something that would cause them to go, oh, Jesus. No, I'm not interested in Jesus. If you're you're like Jesus, I want nothing to do with him. And Jesus says, hey, lest we offend these men coming to collect the temple tax, how about we just pay it even though we don't have to? Now, we see this quite a few times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he talks about eating meat in the presence of another brother or sister in Christ who doesn't agree with eating meat. And he says, hey, I would rather never eat meat again in my life if it causes my brother or sister to what? To stumble or to enter into sin against their own convictions. In Romans chapter 14, Paul says something similar about the way that we look at one another or judge one another as to not cause offensiveness or to detract from the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. But we have to hold this tension because was Jesus offensive? You bet he was. All the time he was offending people, but it was a necessary offense in which the truth of God's word reigned. Some good examples, if you're taking notes this morning, we can't go through each of them, but in Matthew chapter 13, it talks about Jesus offending those in his hometown. Men and women go, wait a minute, where did this guy get his wisdom? Isn't he from Nazareth like us? Don't we know his mother, his father, his brothers, his sisters? There's no way this guy is the Messiah. What a joke. I'm offended. And yet Jesus continued on with speaking truth and identifying himself as the one that God had sent as his son. Matthew 15, 1 through 14, Jesus greatly offends the Pharisees because of what he has said. He is correcting them. He is redirecting the course for people to see God for who he is and to understand his word. And the Pharisees are greatly offended but it is a necessary offense so that people do not continue to stumble in the darkness but pursue the light. John chapter 6 verses 35 through 71 Jesus says some hard things like you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood if you are to inherit eternal life and it says that many of his followers and disciples they left him and Jesus turns to his 12 and he says will you leave also And Peter responds with, where else would we go? You are the only one with the words of life. We know that the gospel is offensive because it demands and commands that a person come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. For there is no other way into eternal life. That message cannot be compromised. That message cannot be compromised. And yet what we see Jesus doing specific in this context with Peter and these tax collectors is not about the truth of the gospel in the sense of Jesus needs to defend. No, I, I am the son of God. and I'm going to prove it to you. That's never been Jesus's character. His character is filled with humility and grace. And in this case, he chooses to remove what could be an possible offense. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write this down. This will be helpful to us in maybe beginning to discern how you can and are being offensive to people and what offenses you need to remove versus what what offenses need to stand because they are rooted in the truth of God's Word. People easily offended easily offend people. People easily offended easily offend people. Or if I were to shorten it, hurt people, do what? Hurt people. people. If we find ourselves as easily offended people, here's often what can happen. When a person gets offended for whatever reason, and in our culture it could literally be anything, right? The way someone dresses, the way someone sounds, the way someone looks, their political beliefs, the way that they uh, do a certain task, the thing that they believe, whatever it is. If you find yourself as an offensive person, here's often what happens. Is when we decide and we embrace that we are offended, we then use that offendedness to justify behaviors like anger and self-righteousness or self-pity or even if we're looking at the heart, idolatry. And in those behaviors, we then have the anti-character of Christ, and we end up doing what to other people? Offending them by our response to us feeling offended. Now, I think one of the reasons why this is important for us to understand is because for a person who is easily offended... Once they have that heart condition of anger or self-righteousness or justifying their sinful response to people, what ends up happening is they become hard-hearted. They then lack the ability to communicate effectively and with compassion. They stop thinking about the other person and start thinking only about themselves. And certainly... As people of Jesus, as followers of Christ, we do not want to become a hard-hearted group of people who choose not to ask questions and listen to others. And Jesus is doing something amazing with Peter. Peter's a pretty black and white guy. He likes to have it simplified and you give him a command and he'll go do it. He has a lot of thoughts about his own strength and being able to accomplish things on his own, not that any of us struggle with that whatsoever. But Jesus is teaching Peter a different way to approach a difficult situation. When we think of what Proverbs tells us about offending a brother or a sister or someone in our neighborhood or community or especially in our family, Proverbs 18, 19 says this. Why don't we read it together? A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. And the contentions are like the bars of a castle. Remember, Solomon is writing these things. He was the wisest man who ever walked the earth, wisdom coming from the Lord. And it says, A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. That's powerful. To offend someone means it's now harder to get to their heart and mind than it is to conquer a fortified city, high walls of a castle. So at all costs, when necessary, we should seek to not do what? Offend others. Anybody getting nervous yet? <laughs> Proverbs seventeen nine says, love prospers when a fault is forgiven, but dwelling on it separates close friends. Love prospers when a fault is forgiven. Here's what I love about this situation. These men have come to ask Jesus, the Son of God, who owns the temple, to pay taxes. And instead of Jesus offending them by saying, Do you know who I am? I mean, think about this. Jesus could crush them with his divinity. He could force them to their knees. He could send them into oblivion. He could reveal his glory and make them blind forever. But instead, what does he want to do? To just pay the men. And here's... I wonder this. And maybe you're like me. You ever wonder what happens to people that Jesus interacts with? And they just kind of see things like dimly through a mirror at one time and then they understand later that he's the son of God and what happens in their life. Can you imagine being the two guys that came to collect this temple tax and Jesus dies on the cross, he's raised from the dead and perhaps these men are in the crowds when they're listening to Peter speak on Pentecost and they go, oh, we asked the son of God to pay temple tax. (laughs) And if they ever came to that realization, the scriptures don't tell us, what would they have remembered about Jesus? Oh, his humility. And that he paid it even though he didn't need to. Even though he was free not to. Jesus sacrificed his own rights to love others. Jesus sacrificed his own rights to love others. I was thinking about this in my own life in areas where I offend unnecessarily. Uh, As a young dad, when I had my first two boys, um, I got angry really easily. And my anger shone on the outside, Um, whether it be in the tone of my voice or sometimes being harsh to my boys or just getting really frustrated within myself. And God is been giving me victory over the outward but still the anger happens on the inward and I know it because when one of my kids does something I no longer yell I no longer would grab them by the arm but here's what I do (laughs) anybody relate anybody relate to getting looks from your husband or your wife or you No, don't raise your hands on those things that's a trick question But for me, my look is offensive to my children. And you may say, well, hey, they deserve it. You're darn right, they deserve it. But here's what I'm realizing. I have a heavenly Father that when I mess up and I look at him, does he do this to me? Mm. Does he? Absolutely not. When I mess up and I look at him, there's compassion and forgiveness. And yes, there's a seriousness of there are consequences for my actions. But his look is not one of contempt, disdain, or hatred. His look is of one of a father who says, that was not okay. I forgive you. Now get on the right track. And if me as a dad to my kids, am giving my own kids dirty looks, I'm causing an offense for them to stumble, because if they can't look at their human dad when they get in trouble, what makes me think as a dad that they're going to look to their heavenly father when they get in trouble? Do you see the offense? Matthew Henry, a great pastor and theologian, if you get a chance to, even if you just looked him up on Wikipedia and read about his life, this, uh, this quote that I'm about to give would, would give you more context into who he is. But I want to read this from Matthew Henry. It says, Christian prudence and humility teach us in many cases to recede from our right rather than just give offense by insisting upon it. We must never decline our duty, meaning the gospel, meaning to follow Jesus and come under his lordship and ensure that our lives do. We must never decline our duty for fear of giving offense, but we must sometimes deny ourselves in that which is our secular interest rather than give offense. In other words, what might we need to do even if it's our right to do something? We may have to give it up. For what purpose? To not let someone else stumble. So to not cause offense Or for a person to think less of Jesus Christ. Now, this is complicated nowadays, isn't it? What's the first thing that may come to your mind? Politics. Okay, let's take politics for an example. Uh, Just for generality's sake, we'll use Republican and Democrat. Um, Within this last election, it's clear that the nation was almost 50-50 divided. And you had Donald Trump and you had Joe Biden. Now, regardless of where you sit this morning, here's something that I want to ask you. If you walk around wearing a Donald Trump t shirt, hat, socks, whatever it is, you got the flag on your truck, do you have a right to do that? Yes. Absolutely, you do. We have a right to do that. If you have a Biden Harris bumper sticker, I didn't see a lot of people wearing Biden Harris. Gear, just mostly bumper stickers as far as they wanted to take it. Um, Do you have a right to put that on your car? Yes, you absolutely do. Do you have a right to vote for one or the other? Yes, you absolutely do. And in certain contexts, do you think it's appropriate or inappropriate to wear a Trump or Biden t-shirt in certain areas? Maybe something to think about. Someone else said Twitter. Social media. Social media has provided the platform for you to be... Offensive. <laughs> I love it. Like half the group said to be offensive. Yes, that's true. That is... That's what happens, right? That's the fruit of what takes place. But ultimately, you can post anything. A video, a comment, and you can be heard. Someone else just said censored. We're really getting into some... You've been offended. It's a platform in which people feel like they can be heard because they can send out their feelings, opinions, whatever they want, to the masses. But is social media the right platform to declare your allegiance to a political party? Is it the right platform to declare your allegiance to anything other than Christ? No. No. And usually, when we see something on social media that does what to us? That offends us, how do we respond? Oh, super fast, with this link, and with this link, and with this. you got to watch this video, and you don't know what you're talking about. And then we have done what as Christians? Oh, we've caused great offense. And we have to take things very seriously, because when we cause offense, it is not merely a reflection upon us, but it is a reflection on Who? Hmm, something deep to think about. Now, we are also given rights, just like Jesus exercised, of we should never be quiet about who we worship. We should never stop worshiping the one that we worship. We should always be ready to give a defense for the gospel, probably not on social media, but within the relationships that we have face-to-face or with family, or with friends, or with neighbors that we know. These are not things that we should give up, but there should be great discernment on how we are representing Christ and how we choose and what we choose to be offensive. Our job should be to remove as many offenses as possible to get people to the gospel, not to hinder and stumble people before they even get to the gospel. This, this secure air system that we've put in. In some ways, it's just, a, a, we're trying to remove an offense to get people to hear the gospel. It doesn't save anybody. But it may be the encouragement that somebody needs to go, oh, well, I, I could come back to church. I could come back into fellowship. I could listen. I could worship. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 41, Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, hey, if someone asks you to go a mile, what should you do? And if someone asks you for your your shirt, what should you give them? Give them your coat too. And if someone asks to lend something, what should you do? You should lend it to them. Now, there are discernment in each one of these things, so don't just apply that liberally and generally in every circumstance. But Jesus is making it a point as followers of Christ. We are to remove offenses that may be keeping people from the gospel. So that when they get offended, it will only be with Jesus and his lordship and nothing else. I'm sure Peter was learning a great deal as Jesus was teaching him. But Jesus isn't done with Peter. There is a unique and interesting way that Jesus chooses to pay his tax. And here's what I love Jesus could have taken the shekel or the, the half shekel from behind Peter's ear, he could have pulled it from an angel's hand, he could have asked Judas for it because Judas was the treasurer of the group and said, Hey, out of our, out of our ministry budget, let's pay this. But Jesus chooses to do something specific. And it says that he sends Peter where? He sends Peter fishing. Now something that I think is pretty radical here is apparently Jesus didn't even have a half shekel on him. And this is something not to be overlooked. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. Not only was Jesus physically poor, right? He didn't even have half a shekel to his name to pay the tax but he was poor in spirit. He left heaven to come to earth to humble himself for our sake so that we might be saved. And Jesus does this amazing thing with Peter. He goes, Peter, I want you to go down to the sea and I want you to take a hook and I want you to fish. And here's what I love. How many of you have ever felt at some point in your life, maybe you're there now, of if I give my whole life to Jesus, He's going to make me a missionary in Africa? I just know it. Or he's going to pull me out of the job that I love. Or he's going to take away this. Or he's going to take away that. And here's what I love about what he's doing with Peter. Is he had called Peter from the shores of Galilee to stop being a fisherman. And to become be a fisher of men. And yet in this case Jesus maybe sees that Peter needs a break. I'm not sure. And he's like hey Peter. Here's what I want you to do. Go fishing. Why don't you go do the thing that you love to do. And while you're doing that. I'm going to provide everything that you need. And amazingly, Peter goes down to the shore and he throws his line in and he brings up the first fish that he catches. And sure enough, what's in its mouth? A shekel. Now here's what's amazing. What was the temple tax? A half shekel. How much does Peter pull up? A shekel. It's called a stater in Greek terms. And Jesus says this to Peter. Take it and give it to them for me and for you. What an amazing depiction of what Jesus is doing on a much grander scale than paying a half shekel for Peter. Peter, I'm going to pay for your atonement. I'm going to cover what you owe. I'm going to purchase you with a high price. I've got it. And I want you to participate in what I'm doing. Peter doesn't make the miraculous happen. Peter doesn't pay the tax or at least doesn't provide the money for the tax. Jesus does that, but he calls Peter to participate in what he's doing. The last note I have for you this morning is remove the offense to bring people to Jesus. Remove the offense to bring people to Jesus. My challenge for you this week Are there areas where you are unnecessarily offensive toward others? Put down your pride. Put down whether you're right or wrong. And look at are there areas where you're offending other people? And if so, seek God's spirit. Seek discernment on how to remove that offense in order to bring people to Jesus. This is what Christ modeled for us. When we go back through this thread, when we look at all of these notes, that first, that first point was we were in debt because of our sin, but Jesus paid our debt. Our debt has been paid. And with that payment then came freedom. We were set free from sin and became children of God. The question is, what are we going to do with that freedom? Are we going to be offensive because we're right? Or will we remove offenses? Because we've already been given everything we need. And it's others who need that same thing. Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this amazing story. Uh, Your word just never ceases to amaze. Full of incredible wisdom and practical application and yet deep spiritual truth that we have been set free because Christ paid the atonement tax and sacrifice on our behalf. O oh Lord, may we be people who seek to bring other people to the feet of Jesus by removing any and all unnecessary offenses that we may be intentionally or unintentionally be setting in their path. Give us the humility. Give us a desire. Give us a heart of compassion to follow in your footsteps by removing those offenses to see people hear the gospel and good news of Jesus Christ loud and clear. Lord, you are a gracious God who called us to yourself. We removed our offense so that we could live in the freedom of Christ. So, Lord, we give you praise and glory as we sing this last song. May our hearts be given over to you in such a way that we would be singing hymns and spiritual songs and praising you with thanksgiving for all the work that you have done. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, why don't we stand together as we sing this last song?